Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. Some of you guys are like, Habakkuk, what? Is that in the Bible? What is that? Right? Yes, it is a book in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. So those of you who learned that in children's ministry, hopefully, the books of the Bible, that's a song I learned. So Habakkuk, so open your Bibles up there. And so we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 2. I was teaching through this uh, on Thursday nights when I would fill in, so I just figured I'd just continue it. So to catch fully up, you'd have to go back and watch the other messages. I will do my best to give you a summary up into where we'll be today in chapter 2. Saints, I have questions for you. Have you ever had questions for God, right? Or am I the only one? Is that the only, you know, okay, praise God, we're, we're honest in here. Have you ever doubted or not understood what God was doing in your life or the life of others, right? Amen, that's all of us, right? Praise the Lord. Have you ever looked at the world and wondered how long would God allow all this evil and wickedness to continue, right? How long is this gonna happen if God is in control on the throne? Why am I still single after all these years, some might say, but everyone around me is getting married and having kids? Why did our baby die in the womb, but those around us are popping out babies left and right? Why did my marriage fall apart, but other marriages overcame? Why are my kids out of control, and those around me's kids are obedient and serving the Lord? Why can't I get over this addiction, but others have victory? Why are my family members die from cancer or other things, but other family members and other people's family members seem to always overcome? Saints, why can't I make enough money to provide for my family? And other people seem like it's easy to make it happen. If God is good, then why the sex trafficking? Overdoses, porn addictions, domestic violence, divorces, even in the church. Even more personal, why on the night before Pastor Dave's son died, why was he here with me till almost 11.30 at night? Why didn't I just tell him to go home? These are things we wrestle with. That was just Pastor Dave. He saw me here by myself waiting for my daughter one night and he stayed, he didn't want me to be by himself. But why didn't I just say, hey, Pastor Dave, go home? He never stays that late. Why? We wrestle with these questions. Why that night, day seven years ago? Why was I in Santa Clarita at Magic Mountain all day? My brother was viciously murdered. Why didn't I just stay in the area that day? Maybe I could have helped him. Saints, the way our faith is set up is that all of us have what we call faith trials. And so an untested faith is the unreliable faith, is that our faith goes through things that we sometimes and often don't understand. And sometimes doubting and questioning God is not always a lack of faith, but it's an act of faith. Because asking questions directly to God is the first step of gaining understanding of what God may be doing. However, saints, remember, God is under no obligation to give us an answer. Sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. And he answers in one of three ways, yes, no, or the heaviest of all lifting, wait. Ooh, right? So true faith, saints, doesn't always understand God's means, 
but it always trusts God's motives. Because everything God does, according to Psalm 136 and 1, is good. Is it wrong to doubt or question God? One would ask. Well, what do we see in Scripture? One of my favorite examples is John the Baptist. How many of you in here have heard of John the Baptist? Should we all of us, hopefully? Well, John the Baptist, no doubt, believed that Jesus is the Christ. Even to the point where he sees two of his disciples and sees Jesus. And then he redirects his disciples and says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I would say, compelling and convincingly, that John believed wholeheartedly Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then, saints, he was shut up in prison, and he had a faith trial. And he sent some of his own disciples to Jesus with a question. And here's what it was. Are you the coming one, or shall we look for another? And Jesus' response, how dare you doubt what is wrong with you? I thought you believed. No, for those of you who read scripture. What he said was actually, is you know what? You go tell John the things you see and the things you hear, that the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame are walking, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended of me. God sent him reassurance because he came directly to him. Well, saints, in the book of Habakkuk, that's exactly what's happening. Is the prophet is, is perplexed about all the evil that he's seeing around him. It's as if we're, he's in today's time. The book is extremely relevant. And the prophet sees the evil that is going on. If you guys have read the Kings and Chronicles, you see this phrase often. They did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the prophet is looking around. And he's like, I know God is good and holy and righteous and just, but how in the world is this allowed to continue if God is good? And so the prophet has a choice to make. Do I take it into my own hands or do I bring it directly to God? And in the book, that's exactly what it does. Chapter one, Lord, how long is this first question? Do you allow this evil? How long do I cry out and you do not hear? And then the second question after God answers him and says, if I tell you, you won't believe it, but I'm actually going to raise up a very evil nation, Babylon, to chasten you guys. And then Habakkuk's next question is, why that way? Has that been us, right? God, I asked it, but I didn't want you to do it that way. Like, can, you redo, can we get a redo? Like, I don't, want that. I don't get that, right? But he brings it directly to God, and he fills in the gaps of his doubt with the promises of God and what he knows. And so he asked God, how long will, why would you do it that way? And then God responds, and Habakkuk actually says, you know what? Because he's in the presence of the Lord, and God's presence humbles us. He then says, okay, Lord, I'm going to actually be like a watchman on the wall and wait patiently for your answer and be ready to be corrected when you answer me. And then God answers his prayer. Saints, because God does answer prayer. Now, what we struggle with is God's timing and God's will. And so two things are true. One of two things are true. Either it's not God's will or it's not God's timing, and we'll know which one in time, Right? Because what we have to realize is if it's not God's timing, you can't force it. Ishmael. If it's God's will, you can't stop it. Isaac, right? 
Those are two things that we have to wrestle with, saints. And so Habakkuk, after he asks those questions and hears from God, he's humbled now in the waiting stage to hear from God in the recess of his prayer closet. And I've learned that, saints, sometimes the best place for the secret things is the secret place, your prayer closet. Yes, we should go to godly counsel, but I've learned sometimes your heart is not safe in the hands of the saints. Not everybody can handle what you're going through. Be wise in who you go to. Amen? We're here to help each other. These are true. But know who you're going to and pray for wisdom. Amen? So that brings us to today's chapter, Habakkuk 2, 5 through 20. And I tell the message, the Lord is in his holy temple. The prophet Isaiah, and this is going to be important to understanding the book. The prophet Isaiah writes, in 55, 8, and 9, most of you have heard this verse before. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Saints, the way God operates, you're not going to fully grasp it. And when you try to, it's equivalent to trying to take the ocean and force it into the cracks of a seashell. It's impossible. The way God's mind is, it's too infinite for finite brains to comprehend. So what do I do when I don't understand? You bring it to God, you trust in his character, you stand on his promises, and you wait on the Lord. I know it's not easy. It was easier to say, but it's harder to do, right? But those are the applications we get from these parts of Habakkuk. And another verse which comes in today's chapter, in order to understand the book better, is the last verse in what I tell the message, verse 20 of this chapter. It says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What God is saying basically is no matter what you think or what you see or what you understand, I'm never out of a place where I'm not in control. And so sometimes those of us who are parents in here, we have to tell our kids, you just got to trust me. I can't, under, I can't tell you what I'm doing now because one, you can't handle it. And two, you need to exercise faith. You need to trust me. And this is exactly where Habakkuk is now. Now, the text, it contains an ancient Hebrew literary device called parallelism. And this section of scripture contains five woes and five stanzas with three verses each. Against Babylon. And this is a taunt song. Against Babylon, directly from God. Those woes are against sins that are so present in our society, even today. And those sins are such as selfish ambition in the form of extortion, covetousness and greed, exploitation of people. We don't do that. No, right? Drunkenness and violence. We don't struggle with alcohol. And idolatry. Am I the only one here who struggles with that? Or maybe we've forgotten what it is. All these things destroy that which God loves most people. Saint sin is not destructive because it's prohibited. It's prohibited because it's destructive. Ultimately, Saint sin is death wrapped in pleasure. Starts in pleasure, ends in misery, and causes people to be separated from God for all eternity. Now, really quick, the history of the woe. Woe occurs over a hundred times in the verses of scripture. The meaning translates to a loss for you or how tragic for you. The NLT 
translates, translates it to what sorrow awaits you. And so it's frequently used as an interjection of distress pronounced in the face of disaster or coming judgment. And so it's God's giving a warning that judgment is coming. For those of you who take notes for context, Isaiah 5 and 20 reads, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Matthew 23, 25 for note takers. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. These are examples of woes in scripture. And saints, I have to say, it begs the question, is there anything in our lives right now that would provoke woes of the Savior in our lives? Is there sin or behavior in our lives, in our thoughts, in our hearts, that would provoke coming disaster or discipline that would come from the Lord? Here's a reality, saints. A lot of the things in our lives are what we call self-inflicted. They're a direct result of not following God's commands. Ouch. Take an inventory. Most of the things that happen to us, not all of them, but most of the things that happen to us is because we simply did not obey God's word. And then we now struggle with the consequences. And what we forget most, I believe, is that our sin does not just affect us. It's been said that it's my sin, but our consequences. Everyone suffers around us. It's not worth it, saints. It's not worth it. Some of our marriages, relationships with our kids, our family members have woes waiting in queue from the Lord. Disaster is on the way. And what I'm learning more and more, there are some days where it's not a good day to do something, but I promise you it's always a good day to repent. Amen? Because there's always joy in repentance and there's nothing but shame and guilt in sin. And so the, the exhortation is to repent today. So point number one of the Lord is in his holy temple. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh no, he's going to talk about alcohol. The text is going to talk about it, but we're going to, you know, going to address it, right? Okay. In your Bibles, verse five, here's what it reads. Indeed, because he transgresses with wine, he is a proud man. And he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desires as hell. And he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. And so in the text, God continues to highlight the proud person, a.k.a. Babylon and its rulers, Nebuchadnezzar, if you guys go back to scripture. God also highlights that wine is the influence behind the evil of the nation of Babylon. In verse four, if you go back, we see a contrast of two types of people and two types of nations. One is a proud person, an arrogant, prideful person whose soul is not upright in him. But the second is a faithful person who lives by the faithfulness of God. And this verse is so important to the New Testament that Paul uses it three times. Romans 1, I believe Galatians 3, and Hebrews 10. If you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, I, I'm not going to go into that. Um, it's so important, and it, it is the doctrine of justification by faith, is that we are declared righteous in the sight of God by simply trusting in the finished work of the cross. Got that from this verse in Scripture. Now, the context of the verse is not justification by faith in this context. It's simply 
living by trusting in God in uncertain times, moment by moment. Amen? It's been said that a moment of faith saves, but a saving faith lasts longer than a moment. Your faith has to be able to endure doubts. And that's where Habakkuk is right now. So God answers and highlights Babylon and the Judean captives. One of them, saints in the context, is getting judgment in God's discipline, which is Judah. 70 years in Babylon, but they get restored because they're God's people and they repent. Babylon, God uses to judge them and then he judges Babylon. That's called double intent in scripture. And so he highlights that. Now this time, Babylon had not yet risen to full power force, but it was going to become the nation being on its radar. And the rise of Babylon was not at that time, but it was on its way, sweeping nations. Now the Hebrew word for those who take notes, here for wine, means every sort of wine. One of the ancient uses of wine was that of the Nazarite drink. After his vow, he would drink that type of wine to complete his vow. It's also the wine that was offered in the drink offering. And so we do see positive purposes for alcohol in scripture. The problem is when it's used outside of God's design, typically and almost always, disaster follows. Amen? And some of us can attest for that in our lives. For context, in Daniel chapter 5, Belteshazzar of Babylon throwing a great party at a pachanga, and they're all getting drunk. And you know what they did? They took the articles from the temple of the holy God, and they used the cups to drink and get drunk, and then worship the God, false God, of course, of cups and, and dishes. How much folly is that? And then that term, if you guys heard the term, the writing on the wall, yes? Uh, yeah, look, you guys got to talk or else I'm going to think you're not here, okay? I, I see you, but if I don't hear you, I, some of my senses go off, okay? So the writing on the wall happened, and God immediately judged Belteshazzar, and that's actually, ancient writings tell us, is when Babylon fell, is they were transgressed by wine, led by wine, and not the Holy Spirit. Drunkenness was indeed the national sin of ancient Babylon, as well attested by ancient writers and saints. To be honest, it's our national sin too in America. There's nothing new under the sun. We see all these things that we see in scripture here going on now because the Bible gives us an honest look at the case for humanity, that humanity's condition. Saints, what I've learned, and hopefully you've learned too, and if you haven't, just listen and don't learn by having to learn yourself, but by other people's examples, nothing fruitful comes from being under the influences of wine and alcohol. Nothing fruitful. Alcohol, in my opinion, is the devil's substitute for the spirit-filled life. Coincidentally, it is called the spirits. And I know we can go on and on, but the Bible doesn't say you can't drink. The Bible, I can drink. Okay, sure. Arguably, the Bible does not say thou shalt not drink wine. But it does talk about drunkenness. And it goes in length of warnings and reminders to be careful about drunkenness. But one thing is infinitely true, saints. When someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, the last thing they want is a sip of alcohol. Have you ever met the filled person, right, in Scripture? And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they asked for a fifth of vodka. Or some mimosas. You don't see it in scripture, saints, anywhere. And if you can, challenge me on it, right? The Bible says, let God be true and every man be a liar. But if, if that's what it is, then show me. But I've read through scripture and I've never seen anyone filled with the Holy Ghost and then say, yo, I need a drink. Pass that to the left, right? 
We don't see that, saints. Never once. And saints, you know what? When they're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a lot that comes that is godly from that because I believe the Holy Spirit, it's the new wine. Symbolically, Scripture tells us. Amen? That's why he says you don't take an old cloth with new cloth and put it on old garment. You don't take new wine and put it in old wineskins because new wine must be in new wineskins. The Holy Spirit must be in a new vessel. That's why all who are in Christ are new creatures. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Let's look at some contrast, please. Let's look at some contrast. When we get alcohol in our system, you lose control. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have self-control. When you get alcohol in your system, you can hurt your physical organs. But when you get filled with the Holy Spirit and it comes upon you, it brings healing to your bones. When you get alcohol in your system, you are led into temptation and sin because drunkenness is the gateway sin to other things. They were drunk and then all these other things happened. And you ask them, well, I was drunk, I didn't know what I was doing. I was drunk and then this happened, right? Don't get drunk. And a lot of problems you will save yourself from. For context, Proverbs 20 and 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Saints, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're led to holiness, righteousness, obedience, to love God, love people, and fear the Lord above all else because the Spirit is the Spirit of holiness. Amen, saints? And so the exhortation is here, there's judgment coming on a nation for being led by wine and not by the fear of the Lord, and much disaster is coming. And so the exhortation for us is we are not to be filled with anything other than the Holy Spirit. Amen? That is not the mark of the believer. And the text continues in verse 5 still, he says, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desires as hell. And because he is like death, and cannot be satisfied, he gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. So they, were, they ended up sweeping up all the nations around them, and guess what? It wasn't enough. They wanted more and more and more. The Bible tells us that the eyes of men are never satisfied. You know why? Because you were not created to be filled and content with those things. Amen? You were created to be filled with the living God to have a loving relationship with him and those around us. And anything other than God's design will lead to a discontentment. The Lord explains that this people are proud and greedy and no matter how many nations they swallow up and conquer, they're still not satisfied. He tells Habakkuk, I see them. I know you think I don't, but I'm never idle. I'm always working. And in fact, I'm working for your good and not your harm. And so you have to trust me. I see the proud and the greedy nation. Saints, pride is the ground from which all sin grows from. And if you're in here, you say, oh, I think I've overcome pride. You're prideful right now. <laughs> see, pride is like an onion. It has a lot of layers. You know how you know about pride? It, it can go from either spectrum. It can be like, oh, look at me. I can do this. Or, you know, I can't do anything because look at this. Right, guess what? What's the main subject? I. There's false humility and there's just outward pride, Right? And it's been said that pride is the only disease known to mankind that makes everyone else sick except the one that has it. Guy, look at that person. And everyone's looking at you like, bro, right? And so this is, a, this is an exhortation to us. We need to take heed lest we fall. I struggle with pride. 
I constantly, Lord, humble me under your sight that you may lift me up in due time. Every day, Lord, keep me from thinking more highly of myself. Lord, help me I, that my foot may not slip, please. It is easy to take the compliments and run, right? Oh, yeah, that was good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know all going to God, but yeah, it actually was a good message. You know, I thought it was pretty cool too, right? So I've learned, hey, look, praise is like perfume. Take it in stride. Smells good, but toxic if you drink it. Amen? So we take it, you know, hey, praise God, all by grace of God. You move forward and recognize you can do nothing apart from God. So therefore, he gets all the honor. He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. Well, Nebuchadnezzar didn't get that message, and neither did the nation of Babylon, and sadly, neither did God's people. Saints in the text, he compares their appetite to the grave and death. So we know that the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. The numbers are in. Every single person faces death. To point it for a man to die once, and afterwards you face judgment. You cannot escape that appointment, and you cannot reschedule it. It comes right on time every time, no matter where you are. And so he's telling them that your appetite is comparable to that. For context, for your note takers, Proverbs 27 and 20 says this, hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5 and 10, he that loves silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that love abundance with increase. This is also vanity. Saints, it's been said you crave what you feed on. So you keep feeding on things other than the word of God, guess what your appetite will be for? Starts with 20 minutes, 30 minutes, Breaking Bad, five hours, whole season. Now, I've never watched Breaking Bad. I don't have that stuff in my house, to be honest. I just hear about it. So I'm just, I'm just going by what you guys told me, okay? But it starts real small, and then you keep feeding yourself and feeding yourself, and guess what? You're now craving for it, and you have an appetite for it. Well, the Bible says we're to feed on the word of God, to desire it more than our necessary food. Psalm 1 says the blessed man meditates twice, day and night, all day, amen? And there's much more fruit from that than there is on the other stuff. Saints, here's what I've learned. Where flesh abounds, sin abounds that much more. We're called to walk in the spirit. You can never do enough drugs. You can never have enough sex. You can never watch enough porn. You can never play enough video games. You can never have enough followers, clicks, likes, hearts, and comments on all the social media platforms that you can conjure up. You can never watch enough shorts or reels. You can never gain enough attention, soak up enough compliments, have enough tattoos, get enough degrees, preach enough sermons, do enough for God. Saints, as Jesus said, you will thirst again. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't quench. You can try all you want. You just simply were not created to be fulfilled and satisfied with those things. I'm not saying those in themselves are inherently wrong, but what happens is whatever you yield your members to obey, to slaves you are to them. And so we learn. Have you ever a childhood friend growing up collected Jordan shoes? Now, I've never owned a pair of Jordans in my life. I've never bought some. I was recently gifted some. I'll wear them, but I won't buy them. And this young man literally collected Jordans every year. And now to this day, he's my age, I'm almost 40, and he has over 200 pairs. And guess what? Not enough. Not enough. 200. 200. Imagine how much money that is. 
Sometimes they're three, four hundred a pair. 200 pairs, a whole walk-in closet full of Jordan shoes that he does not even wear because they might get dirty, right? That's like saying I don't want to drive my car because my tires might get dirty. They're, you, they're shoes. They get dirty. That's what they do, right? You can clean them if you want to, but they're still going to get dirty. But it's never enough, saints. They asked the billionaire how much more. His reply, just a little bit. They asked the gambler how much more. He said, just one more bet. The reality, saints, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is how every single one of us is drawn away by our own lust and enticed. Here's the reality. We were created by God and for God. He, God created the fish for the sea, the tree for the soil, and yet when making mankind, he said, this one is for me. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We're the crown of God's glory. We are the only of all of God's creation created in his own very image. And so it was said that God created us in his own image, that his own image would be shown. And so we have to ask ourselves, even in our broken state, how much of that image are we still showing today? Saints, what that means is connection to God is our natural habitat. Because of sin, we're all like fish out of the water, breathing in and out everything in the environment as our soul grasps for that which would satisfy and sustain us. The only one who could fill that void is God who created us, the lover of our soul. You can search high and low. You can try everything out there. Solomon tried all of that. He said, I've set my heart to know wisdom, madness, and folly. Everything. I got the horses. I got the women. I got the money. And then he ended and said, all of it was vanity. Vanity, says the preacher. Because apart from God, you have no meaning. Apart from God, you have no purpose. And apart from God, you have no contentment. It is our natural habitat, habitat to be connected to God. C.S. Lewis says this, our souls are restless until we rest in him. Resting in him is trusting in the finished work of the cross of Calvary for salvation. Our souls are only satisfied in him. And this is not the attitude of the nation of Babylon, and that's why judgment is coming. Jesus said in the I am statements in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life, and that all who come to me will not hunger, and those who believe in me will not thirst. The ultimate thirst quencher and appetite filler. So the question is, saints, is this you today? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you drinking water from the well of the world? in which Jesus told the women at the well that you will thirst again? Are you discontented and unsatisfied? Jesus says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be fulfilled in him. Amen? It's been said that though a home be a palace, yet to a discontented mind, it's a prison. Whatever you yield your members to obey, that you are slaves to do. And that is Babylon and that is the context of verse 5. So viewpoint number one, the Lord is in his holy temple. Be not drunk with wine, saints, or anything else. Pride, delusion, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what you should do is every day, Lord, fill me up. Every moment, Lord, fill me up, please. Let me walk in the Spirit so I don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Those two things war against one another. The Bible says to keep you from doing what you want to do. And so you have to ask yourself, whichever one you're going to feed the most is the one that's going to lead in your life. 
If you want contentment, walk in the Spirit. If you want discontent, despair, and depression, walk in the flesh, because that's what they lead to. Point number two, beware of selfish ambition. We now go into the taunt song, verse six in your Bibles. He says, will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, woe to him who increases that which is not his. How long unto him who loads himself with many pledges? Verse seven, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken those who oppress you? And will you not become their booty? Because, verse eight, you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. So imagine you're basically starting a song, a taunt song that will be a reality check to Babylon when they fall. Told you this was coming. Now you're getting what you deserve. Now we're not children. We don't say nana, nana, boo, boo anymore, but that's kind of what this would be to the nation of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most prideful men in all of history. I built all this by myself. No one can tear this down. Remember King Sennacherib and I think the uh, book of Isaiah and Kings? He says, what, what is your God going to do? He's going to be just like the other nations that are going to fall. And then Hezekiah goes into the temple, lays it out before the Lord. And then one night, one angel, 185,000 Assyrians, done, slayed, right? Saints, God is the one who takes the proud man and brings them low, right? And so we need to take heed of pride. The NLT translates verse six, six as, what sorrow awaits you thieves? Now you will get what you deserve. You've become rich by extortion, but how much longer can this go on? Saints, this sounds like our, our country today. It, this four, three, 4,000 years ago, and it's still relevant today. It is amazing how you can look at scripture and it's like as if you were there right now. Of course, the faces have changed, the name has changed, but the game is still the same. And that's why we can trust what the scriptures teach us. Saints, the Babylonians were consumed by selfish ambition. At all costs, they expanded their wealth and kingdom they use violence, extortion, and greed to do as they pleased. In verse six, it says they loaded up many pleasures, which means they stole loads of goods from helpless people. They instituted heavy taxation on the conquered nations, and thus the Lord warned them the owners of those goods, meaning all those nations, would rise one day and collect what duly belonged to them. Judgment would be that they would be the victims instead of the ones who they were plundering. Because the reality is, saints, God's not mocked. What a man sows, he shall reap. This is not karma. This is the law of harvest. Whatever you plant is what you will grow. You can see it in your life, the life of others, and the life of those in Scripture. God is on his holy temple, beholding the good and the evil. He's going to leave no stone unturned. Babylon, judgment is coming Ultimately, saints, this was fulfilled and the Medo-Persians came and took over Babylon. For you note-takers, Jeremiah 17, 11 reads this. Like a patriots that hatches eggs, she is not laid, so are those who get wealth by unjust means. At midlife, they will lose their riches. In the end, they will become poor old fools. That's the word of God. Saints, your sin will find you out. It's like a bloodhound dog for blood. Your sin will find you out. The Bible says those who sow iniquity reap sorrow. It doesn't end well. 
Saints, ambition in itself can be a great thing. However, if its motives result in people, if the motives are selfish, greed, and abusive, then it's wrong on every level. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that make it our aim, ambition, to be well-pleasing to the Lord. That our ambition to be should seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To whatever I do and say, may it bring honor and glory to the Lord. At some point, saints, you have to ask yourself, you have to get over asking yourself, does God love me? That is infinitely true. It is obvious, in my opinion. It is clear every breath you take. It is clear at the cross of Calvary, the greatest demonstration of love in all of human history. It is clear that that's a love distinctive from human love. It is clear that God loves us, and I pray and hope you would never doubt that. But at some point, you have to make a transition from does he love me to is he pleased with me? I know God loves me, but is he pleased with me? Do I put a smile on his face? Saints in Christ, it's Christ that lives in us. We no longer live. All our ambition should be motivated by the love of Christ and the prioritizing of kingdom over culture. Have you noticed that culture keeps changing? Can't make up their mind, right? Back when I was growing up, it was a feminist movement, right? What happened to the feminists? They're going to be under the tyranny of, of, of women who think they're men. What happened to the equal rights for women, right? We, we established that. We have men's sports and women's sports for a reason, but now you have men claiming to be women trying to compete. Why isn't there an outcry of injustice? Because the culture is always shifting and changing like shifting shadows. But saints, our Lord remains the same today, yesterday, and forever. It is not loving. I'll repeat, it is not loving to allow people to live in delusion. It is as if the person says, I identify as a steel building so I can stand in front of a train. No, that's a delusion. You're not a steel building. You're a human being made in the image of God, and that is not your purpose or the plan for your life, so I can't let you live in that delusion because I love you. Take truth for 200, amen? The truth is important, saints. We can't allow people to walk in delusion. I remember in high school, a yearbook, they would ask you, you know, now granted, I wasn't walking with the Lord, but we all had ambition, right? But I remember people writing, they'd have a quote like, you know, what, what will be your future goals? And I remember people's goals, would be, I'm going to make a lot of money, be rich one day, I'm going to take over the world, I'm going to have this many children, this many wives, and some of those things I get, right? Mine was real simple, get a good education, play college football, right? I did that, but I was still empty. I was still empty. It wasn't until I got filled with the Holy Spirit that true contentment came. Amen? But the point being is that ambition that does not prioritize the kingdom over everything else is empty, vain, and will leave you discontent. The question is, what are you seeking after? What are you thirsting after? And whatever it is, will it make it through the fire? Are you building up and storing treasures for the burn? or treasures for heaven, right? You have to really think about that. All the things that I'm doing and spending my time investing in, is it food for the fire or is it treasure for the kingdom? You have a decision to make, saints. Let us learn from the folly of Babylon, ancient Judah and the lives around us. We are called to work with our own hands and earn what we have, saints, 
But if we're not working for what we have, that means someone else is, and that's what the folly of Babylon was. They didn't want to work, but took advantage of other people, and that by force. Saints, it's very clear, if a man don't work, he cannot eat. Very simple. But we have a generation of men that are sitting around with idle hands, playing video games, YouTube, being an influencer, right? And I've learned that the idle man tempts the devil to tempt him. Amen? Devil, look at me. I'm not doing anything. Here I am. Use me, right? No. Be busy for the kingdom. Don't use idle hands. Work with your hands. Use what the Lord gave you. Saints, let's not follow after ancient Judah or Babylon or even some of those in our lives now because remember, we're setting the example for the next generation. What I've learned, saints, that whatever is not transformed is simply transferred. If there's an act or sin or bad thought process in your life and it's not transformed by the cross of Calvary, then all you do is transfer it to those around you and your children. And you'll be held accountable. And so my encouragement is to come to the cross for transformation. The scripture tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you by testing may prove what is the good, perfect, and acceptable will of the Lord. Romans 12, 1. Saints, he loves us so much that he will bring swift correction and discipline to us. And I remember the example of King David. If you guys remember where he was winning a lot of wars, I think it's the second Kings. And then he said, you know, I think I'm a number of the people. My army's pretty strong, right? And the Lord made it very clear. That army is my army. Whether by many or whether by few, I will win. You do not number the people. And David and his pride, let's let us number them. I got this many men. And God brought judgment and said, hey, I give you three options. You can get fall in the hands of man, and here's what can happen here. And then he gave another option. The last option, he says, then you can get it directly from me. And even David realized that the correction from God was way better than the hands of man. He said, because there's wrath in the hands of man, but there's mercy in the hands of the Savior. Saints, the word of God says that the Lord is known by the judgment he executes. And I believe you can tell a lot about somebody by the rules that they have for their life and for their home. And so here's a reality check. Those of you who are parents, what kind of rules govern your home and what would they say about you? Two principles in scripture of all the commands and instructions, provision and protection. Jeremiah 29, 11, this is out of context, but it's in principle. I, the Lord, know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, that is provide, not to harm you, that is protect. All of scripture is aligned of instruction that prospers, prospers us, provide, and protects us. It keeps us from the things that we were not meant to be and makes a way that's conducive for us to become all that God called us to be. And so in your home and in your life, are the instruction you follow, the rules you have aligned, are they conducive to God providing for you and protecting you and that for your children? Amen? Amen. If I were you, I'd go home and reevaluate that. And I know it's hard. I have six kids. I'm not saying I follow all this stuff perfectly, right? But there's a standard. I may not always keep it perfectly, but there is a standard. Amen? I don't allow my kids to stay up all night on their phones. There's no phones allowed in their rooms, right? I say open square. Yeah, what are you hiding? Anything you have, you could be, all of us can have this, right? They have to turn their phones in at night, right? Because I love them. I don't want them to be consumed by that. Now, I'm not saying you're a bad parent if you do that. I mean, 
You each have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But the conviction of my home is I want to do everything to provide for my kids and protect them because that's what God does for me. Amen? So I encourage you guys with that. So review of point number two. Beware of selfish ambition. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I know that God loves me, but is he pleased with me? Point number three. Beware of covetousness and greed. Godliness with contentment is a great gain, saints. Verse 9 says, Woe unto him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples, and sin against your own soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. St. Scripture says, according to Ephesians 4.28, there are three ways you can gain wealth. You can receive it as a gift, you can work for it, or you can steal it. God calls the Babylonians out for their ill-gotten gain and stealing for the purpose of building their own empire so that they can be protected from any type of warfare. But saints, here's the reality. You couldn't build a wall high enough to keep God out. Amen? They try to do that in... in, uh, Tower of Babel, right? Are we going to build? Are we gonna build? Shut down. Shut down and confused. It's not happening. Babylon thought, I can build a wall high enough to keep everyone out, including God. And it just simply is impossible. Saints, it's futile to think that we can do that. It reminds me of King David in Psalm 139. He says that, where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I go from your presence? If, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I, if I make my bed in the, in the grave, you're there. If I go into the depths of the ocean, you're there. Even your right hand shall uplift me. There's nowhere you can flee from God's correction or God's judgment or from his grace or from his mercy. This is what Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon thought that they can do. Saints, I would encourage you, don't hide it, confess it. God already knows. He knows your thought before you think it, your words before you say it. Don't allow pride and shame to keep you from repentance. That phrase, may set his nest on high, most likely refers to an eagle's nest. Eagle's nest was considered secure from the reach of enemies so that the Babylonians, who were great builders, thought their empire was in, impenetrable. For context, you note takers, Obadiah 1.4. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Here's the reality. What goes up must come down. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles will be exalted by the Lord. In God's economy, the way up is down. I've been told that the Christian can see more on their knees than the world can see on their tippy toes. Saints, we're to be humble, desperate, and dependent on the Lord. We're to lead from our knees. Amen? This is not what the nation of Babylon was doing, and that's why we need to be careful of covetousness. Destroys family, saints. It's desiring more of what you already have or of what someone else has. It's being not content with what you have. Example, Proverbs 15, 27, whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Saints, it's my sin, but our consequences. It's the 10th commandment, and it can be described and said that if you're guilty of covetousness, you're most likely guilty of other break, breaking of other commandments as well. 
because it leads to idolatry. It leads to mistreatment of your neighbor. At all costs, I will get what my carnal heart desires. And it leads to the destruction of families and relationships. We see that in our lives. We see that in the world. Saints, it destroys us because we're not created to have a never-ending feeding of fleshly desires. And it always turns to idolatry. Every time. The Babylonians, as you guys know, were stealing that, that which was not theirs to build their empire. In verse 10, he says, shameful counsel. They were counseling violence and greed, which in turn would actually destroy their whole family. Instead of having houses and families that bring honor and glory, they will have disgrace and shame that results in the loss of their lives. Saints, we need to take heed lest we fall. When I hear of other people falling, when I hear of people struggling, my first response is mercy. Because I realize if it wasn't for the grace of God, I'm one bad choice away, I'm one bad season away, I'm one bad moment away from doing the same thing. I have not arrived. I'm, I'm still at the foot of the cross. The same as I was the day when I first came. Because the reality is the prideful man doesn't think after God, doesn't think he needs God. And so we need an everlasting reminder that we cannot save ourselves. That's the cross of Calvary. Jesus in the parable, he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Saints, is there a price for your soul? Have you put a price on it? Have you put a label on it? Oh, how precious is a soul when both the devil and God are after it. There's no price tag. But yet we do that in our lives. We put a price tag on our soul and we exchange. And it will never, ever be a fair exchange because there's no price tag for your soul, saints. The parable, Luke 12, he says, take heed of covetousness. The covetous man was so consumed with gaining more that he forsook his own soul. And on that day, it was required of him. What is he gonna do now? Many people say, oh no, I got another chance. Lord, give me one more chance. It's appointed for a man to die once. And afterwards is judgment. Saints after death, there's no mulligan. You can't get a do-over. And I've learned that hell is the hardest place to get into. Let me explain. Because you have to get in your 18-wheeler of pride and bulldoze God's grace and mercy every single day of your life. Every breath you take, when you look at creation, when your conscience convicts you, and when the gospel is played out before you in the lives of others, every day that you live, every moment that that comes to grips, you have to say, no, I think I'm good. No, I don't need it. No, I'm okay. Nah, I can do it on my own, even though I keep failing and I'm empty and miserable. But I can still keep doing this, right? Hell is a hard place to get into. Like, you really got to work to get there. And that just goes to show you how devastating pride is. It, you'll work harder at being prideful than it would ever take at being humble. Saints, we need to take heed lest we fall. He says you take shameful counsel. What kind of counsel do we operate under? The Bible says do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Ungodly counsel is that which is contrary to the word of God, meaning you must know the word of God, and that it's not coming from someone who is committed to bringing out the best of you in the sight of the Lord. Saints, if you need godly counsel, you don't go to the person who's living a rebellious life. Not only do they not care about bringing the best out of you, they don't know how to bring the best out of themselves. 
and you pray for them and you show them mercy, but you don't go to them for counsel. We need the Holy Spirit, the counsel of truth. Because of their drunkenness and pride and greed, the Babylonians had no fear of God and thought they were indestructible. It reminds me of Romans 1, 2, and 3 when he goes in, into the, the de-evolution of man and he says that there's no fear of God before their eyes. Neither were they thankful. Professing to be wise, they became as fools. This is our world today. Take an inventory. Verse 11, he says, a stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. This means the very buildings they built from unjust gain, violence, and extortion would be a witness against their evil when judgment finally comes. For context of those, you take notes, James 5, 3 and 4. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Saints, we need to take heed lest we fall. Reveal point three, beware of covetousness. Godliness with contentment is a great game. Point number four, the golden rule. I tell my kids this all the time. Do as unto others as you would have done unto you. And the text says, woe to him who builds town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is not the Lord of hosts. Is it not the Lord of hosts that the people's labor to feed the fire and nations worry themselves in vain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord. And as the waters cover, as the waters cover the sea. Saints, he calls them on their mistreatment of the people around them. God cares about every single person. And I would ask you, what kind of legacy, if you, if you went to heaven today, what would your legacy be on how you treated people? Are, are, are you only kind to people when there's something in it for you? Are, are, you, are you only around people who can benefit you? Or do you truly care for people as God does? We all need work on it, but it's an examination that we have to do in our hearts. The golden rule, do as unto others as you would have done unto you. And Jesus would go even further, as I have loved you, love one another. The love of the cross. One of my favorite scriptures, and when I explain people the, the difference between the love of God and the love of man, Paul gives us in Romans 5. He says, while we were weakened without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he goes into comparing the love of man. He says, scarcely would one die for a righteous man. He said, for a good man would one even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So human love is conditional based upon status, right? If, if, if you're good enough and great and righteous enough, in my eyes, maybe once in a while, someone might die for that person. That's human love. Scarcely would one die for a questionably good person, right? But God says, I don't, I don't have any conditions or boundaries. You just need to be a sinner. And that's all of us, right? And I'll demonstrate my love towards you. Jesus says that's the same love we're to love one another. And love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. And loving one another is telling the truth in a kind way, but also helping each other carry our burdens. Amen? And so he calls out the Babylonians on what they've done and how they've exploited image bearers of God and that they cannot expect to escape 
the judgment of God. And he basically says that your labor is food for the fire. It's not going to outlast the burn when everything folds. And so saints, each person is an object of God's love. We are created in the image of God. I'm going to go through these points quickly because time is getting behind us. And so point number, number five, be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker, saints. Oh boy. And the text says this, verse 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor. Uh-oh. Pressing him to drink the bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of the beast which made them afraid because of men's blood, and the violence of the land, and the city, and all who dwell in it. This woe is, is because of the debauchery of the nation. They were not only getting drunk, but they were forcing the surrounding nations to get drunk so they can weaken their defense and take advantage of them. Once again, I'm not talking about the alcohol. The text brought it up. I'm just saying, another warning, right? Again, the issue with alcohol has caused many to go astray and dishonor God. Examples in scripture, Samson. You guys remember Nahab and Abihu? They offer strange fire. Many believe they were under the influence of wine. If you go to Leviticus 10, because right after he says, hey, should be drinking wine, right? They offer strange fire on the altar, being led away by intoxicating drink. Drunkenness is on the list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6. It's said to be a work of the flesh in, first, in uh, Galatians chapter 5. And lastly, Proverbs 31, King Lemuel's mother tells him it's, it's not for kings to drink wine or for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert justice of the afflicted. Saints, God rebuked both drunkenness and those who promoted it. Here's what Paul says, Ephesians chapter five. He calls drunkenness dissipation. It's been said that drunkenness is a waste of resources that should be submitted to Jesus. Anyone in here under the influence of alcohol? and was advancing the kingdom? Any takers? It doesn't happen, right? Now, I'm not saying God can't use something that you do or say, right? He'll do it in spite of you, not because of you, but we don't see anyone under the influence in advancing the kingdom as a standard in scripture, right? Those resources belong to the Lord. That time belongs to the Lord. The damage of drunkenness goes beyond the act itself and to what effects it has in the lives of families. In the 1990s, we're in 2023 now, it's 30 years ago, okay? It was recorded that yearly in the United States, alcohol was responsible for almost 100,000 deaths, 25,000 by drunk drivers alone, 6 million non-fatal injuries, and more than 100 billion in economic losses as unemployment and loss of productivity. Saints, again, while the Bible does not flat out prohibit alcohol, it gives us so many warnings against evils of strong drink. One of my former foster youth recently, about three or four months ago, had gave his life to the Lord, Adam knows him, and he had struggled with alcohol and he had overcame. And the people that he was hanging around influenced him to drink. And when he drinks, he goes into what we call psychosis. He has to take medication, he's not supposed to be drinking. He was influenced by them, became in psychosis, 
law enforcement gets involved and he's delusional, doesn't understand what he's doing, and he charges an Oxnard PD officer and they shot him dead on the spot. This is a reality. It wasn't that he himself went to it, but he was pressed to do it. And it was a very devastating event. We're still recovering from it now. But again, saints, I'm not here to tell you don't drink. I'm here to tell you you need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's a lot of warnings in scripture about things that devastate and destroy our lives. And so the question would be is, if I do this, is it conducive to provision and protection? If not, if I'm going to cause my brother or sister to stumble, I shouldn't do it. It's not fruitful. And I know for me, I never want to be in a position where I cannot minister to someone for the kingdom. And if I'm drinking, it ain't happening. If I'm doing other things that would hinder the, the kingdom, would hinder the word, then I will fall into that. When he says, cup of my right hand, this is a symbol of divine retribution and judgment. Verse 17 tells us, because of violence done to Lebanon, the ill treatment of animals, referring to ruthless exploitation of trees and animals, all of this is because of the men's blood. God loves people, saints. He loves each of us as if there's only one of us to love. Saints, the wrath of God, the cup, that's the gospel. See, God's wrath over sin had to be poured out over someone, and it was poured out on his son. Saints, this is the gospel. It's been said that Jesus drank a cup of wrath without mercy, so we can drink a cup of mercy without wrath. That is the good news of the gospel, saints. That is what is given to us all throughout Scripture. God's wrath and fury and anger had to go somewhere, and it went on Jesus. The just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, Lord, as Augustine said, I never understood the meaning of your love until I understood the meaning of your death. Point number six and seven, we'll go quickly because we're pretty much done. Worship the creator, not creation, and the Lord is on his throne. I'll summarize the point. So they again go into idolatry, sticks and stones, things of that nature. They start worshiping them, and he, God calls them on it because the idolatry saints is, it's basically like the Antichrist. It's literally in place of God. And idolatry is, it's not God saying, hey, you better give me this glory or else I won't be who I am. Guys, idolatry doesn't take anything away from God. It takes away from you. When you worship something you were not created to worship, it destroys your life. When you worship something, think about it. If we're the pinnacle of God's creation, right? Now, again, we're not to worship ourselves. Why would you worship something equal or less? Does that make any sense? We worship things we make with our own hands. I think about Elijah when he called down the, the, the bell. He said, hey, I'll let you go first. Where's your God? Is he on the potty somewhere? Is he out to lunch? Where's he at? Nothing happened, saints. Idolatry is futile. It is empty and vain. And then Elijah came and he says, how long will you falter between two opinions? You have a decision to make. If Baal is God, then worship him. But if God is God, then worship him. And we know that God is the true and living God. And lastly, the Lord is on his throne, saints. And this is the message today. No matter what you're going through, worship team, you come on up. No matter what you're going through, no matter what it may look like, no matter what questions, doubts, concerns, despair you may have, the reality is we must be like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six. He looked up and God was on his throne. His robe filled the temple. God is in control. 
And so I want to encourage you guys today, if anyone is in here and you have not yet given your life over to Jesus, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. It's always a good day to repent. The Bible says, if you confess me before a man, I will confess you before my father. Time and chance happens to us all. Tomorrow is not promised. If there's anyone here, I want to give you an opportunity. Just raise your hand. I'll pray for you. If you have not given your life to Jesus, if you say today, if I die, I don't know where I'm going. Jesus says you can know today by placing your faith and trust in me. Anyone in here? Anyone at all? Spow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the bread of life. That all the things in this world can never satisfy us but you, Lord Jesus. That you created us for you, to worship you, to love you, and to have a relationship with you and others that goes into all eternity. Lord, when we think about your love, our minds cannot comprehend how the superhero dies for the villain, the just for the unjust, to bring us to you. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that we take heed lest we fall, but that we would always remember that you are in control. And when we don't know your means, we can trust your motives. Lord, we love you. We want to worship you. We cannot wait till we see you face to face in heaven when all of your glory and all of your splendor and all of your majesty. In Jesus' name we pray.